Antioch to Antioch. Dr. John Whitcomb has taken us on a journey with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, showing us the importance of both chronology and geography in understanding the book of Acts. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and you're listening to Encounter God's Truth from Whitcomb Ministries. Our teacher, Dr. John Whitcomb, a seminary professor and author for nearly 70 years, has more than 1,300 sermons available, which you can access freely at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Dr. Whitcomb devoted his life to explaining how God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. And this internet and radio ministry is dedicated to presenting timeless truths for changing times. We're so glad to welcome you to our program today as we continue Volume 5 of this ongoing series called Acts, Witness of the Early Church. Dr. Whitcomb brought these messages to the congregation assembled for the Independent Fundamental Bible Conference held at Middletown Bible Church in Middletown, Connecticut over the course of six yearly gatherings. We're so glad for their cooperation in preparing them for you here on Encounter God's Truth. Dr. Whitcomb resumes his message from last week now, giving us details about the people and places that confront us on the pages of the book of Acts. Let's listen now to Dr. John Whitcomb. Well, Mark was with them. Interesting, it doesn't mention him as being one that they sent forth, but he tags along, as it were. And uh, they are now where? They have now come down from Antioch, which is a city of 800,000 people, the third greatest city of the Roman Empire, next to Rome and Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, probably had over one million Jews, by the way. Antioch maybe had seventy or 80,000 Jews, but they went down to the coastal city of Seleucia and then moved down to this island of Cyprus and moved from Salamis on the east coast to Paphos on the west coast. And uh, whose home country was that island? Barnabas. That's where he was born and raised, and he knew that land like the palm of his hand. So it's very appropriate at this stage of their ministry for Barnabas sort of to be the leader as they went uh, through that country, uh, called that island called uh, Cyprus. And when they had gone through the isle, verse 6, under Paphos, that's on the west coast, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet. How sad, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which is Aramaic for what? Son of Jesus. His father had that name, which was apparently not an unusual name in that day. And of course, ever since the Lord Jesus came, Christians normally don't call their children Jesus, but in that day it was a relatively common name for a Jew. So he was the son of Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a, a prudent man, a man of integrity as an administrator under the Roman Empire. And I might say this by way of a footnote, friends, that oftentimes, in fact, the majority of times in the book of Acts, Luke speaks highly of Roman officials. The biggest problem Paul had was not Roman officials, but Jews, fellow Jews. So sad, so tragic. Now, this man was a prudent man. And he called Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now, that was a rare opportunity, was it not, to speak to a leading official of the Roman Empire in that island. Now, when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, you remember, he was told, you will appear before kings and rulers and you will suffer great things for my sake. Well, here's the 
appearing before a ruler without the suffering. He's moving victoriously, friends, through this island in his first step of missionary endeavor, is he not? Now watch what happens to this man, Bar-Jesus. Sort of like Simon Magus, you remember, back in chapter 8 of Acts. Verse 8. Elymas the sorcerer, that's his other name, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Friends, that is a very ominous statement, is it not? You're almost ready to hear in the next statement, and so God smote him. You know what's amazing in the New Testament? People who fight against God, who oppose God's servants, who hate the gospel, that God tolerates year after year after year. God, friends, I'd like to make this announcement, may I, is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. If God dealt instantly with every sin, where would we be? Gone. Wouldn't be anybody here. Not even in the church. That's remember from Acts chapter 5, two believers who dropped dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit, but they were believers. They had a false thought about God and died. And I say, Lord, we're here just because of your mercy. That's all. Your mercy. Someday I'm sure God will show us that, won't he? Dear child, if I had dealt with you as you deserve to be dealt with, you would have departed long, long, long before you did. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Well, friends, here we are. Verse 9, Saul, who is also called Paul, now here's the beginning, you see, of uh, his taking over the leadership of this team. Just a little hint here of what's coming. It wasn't Barnabas that talks to him, see, get the point, it's Saul now who does the talking. Saul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Uh, in other words, it's the Holy Ghost that this man is blaspheming and withstanding, not Saul or Barnabas. So Saul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. You're not Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. You're Bar-Devil, Bar-Demon. Just like Jesus said to the leading Jews of, his, of Jerusalem, that you are of your father the what? The devil. Okay, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, stopped there. You say, wait a minute, I didn't think people could be saved by seeing miracles. You're right. That's a very dangerous thought. In fact, Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, blessed are those who have what? Not seen and yet have believed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by seeing a sign miracle. And the Pharisees and the scribes always ask Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign. He said, this is an evil, adulterous generation that seeks after signs, and you won't have one except the sign of Jonah. Now, friends, this is a very difficult issue, is it not? How do sign miracles fit into early church history? 
the beginning, the foundations of the church. And that's a very complex issue. But I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God added a footnote here. Watch this one. I like to always underline footnotes. Okay. It says, The deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at what? At the doctrine of the Lord. That's what he heard, you see, the gospel, how to be saved. You say, well, I I didn't see in here anything about the gospel. Stop there a minute. So much of the book of Acts, friends, is a drastic summarization and a reduction of the massive messages that Paul and others gave and just gives you a brief summary of what happened and who said what. But you have to understand that Paul preached the gospel to him. He had heard the gospel, okay? And that's what he believed, and that's what saved him. You say, well, then what's the function of the miracle? The same function the miracles had with Jesus' public ministry. Did seeing his miracles save anybody? No. Then why did he perform thousands of signed miracles? To confirm his claims to be the Messiah, you see, to give visible public demonstration of his authenticity as Israel's Messiah to attract and hold attention to himself and his message. And if people then would listen to the message and believe the message, they'd be saved, but seeing the sign miracles, they wouldn't be. Now, a prime example is Nicodemus. He saw the miracles of Jesus, and he was convinced of two things. They're not fakey, and they're not demonic. And he came to Jesus one night and told him, just want to tell you, sir, that no man can do the miracles you do. I mean, they're genuine unless God be with him. They're divine. I'm convinced your miracles are genuine and they're divine. To which Jesus could have responded by saying, well, thank you, sir. Welcome. You're the 13th apostle. We just need help here. Join us. No. No. Said, unless you be born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God You're so far from the kingdom, you can't even see it. But he believed the miracles, didn't he? You see, that is how carefully God warns us about the limitations of sign miracles, their significance, their importance, their function, but their limitations. So here again, the miracle attracted the the attention of this uh, Roman ruler, but the message that he believed is what saved it. Okay? Now... Continue, please. Uh, By the way, this was probably the first sign miracle Paul himself ever accomplished under God. Okay? And uh, this sorcerer is wandering around totally blind. Totally blind. Uh, Like, uh, you remember those who uh, tried to destroy the two angels that came to visit Lot and Sodom, they were stricken blind and groped around trying to find them and couldn't. Now, the Bible is very clear on this point, dear friends, that uh, blindness is not a sign of evil or sin. In fact, Jesus made that point very clear, didn't he? After he healed a blind man in John chapter 9, the Pharisees, you know, were greatly shocked and offended by this blind man's claim that uh, Jesus had healed him supernaturally. He finally believed in the Lord Jesus and worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see might not see, 
that is, those who think they see, are under judgment, because this is the condemnation, John 3.19, that light has come into the world, and men love what? The darkness rather than the light, neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. So Jesus said, for judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see. You say, amazing. And that they which see might be made blind. Hmm. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Is that what you're saying, sir? That we can't see the theological truths? That we don't understand the Old Testament scriptures? And Jesus said to them, If ye were blind, that is physically, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. In other words, you think you know everything about God that's essential, but you are spiritually blind and you are condemned because of your pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. That's an amazing thing. Now, Paul himself, of course, was blinded for a couple days, wasn't he, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was an opportunity for him to think through all the things he'd ever said and done against Jesus and his people as uh, he was prepared to begin serving the Lord. That's a fascinating concept in the New Testament, is it not? Spiritual and physical blindness. Now, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company, oh, wait a minute, Paul and his company, I thought Barnabas was in charge of this group. During that trip through Cyprus, friends, a significant change took place in the administration of this gospel team. Okay? And uh, it's a very subtle thing. And Luke, who, of course, is Paul's right-hand man in the coming years, and who, in retrospect, writes this story, is very careful not to degrade Barnabas, you see. We're going to have a problem with Barnabas a little bit later here. But he's very careful to honor Barnabas. Barnabas was the one, that, after all, who was sent by the Church of Jerusalem up to Antioch to take charge of what's going on up there and to supervise that, okay? And remember, Barnabas went up to Cilicia to find Paul, who had been there for years after his conversion. Maybe it's been disinherited by his parents, of whom we know nothing. Maybe he'd been beaten in a synagogue. Maybe he had been killed and was caught up to the third heaven or something. All kinds of things happened during those years that Paul was up in Cilicia his, and Tarsus, his hometown. But Barnabas came up and commissioned him, as it were, to come down to Antioch and help in the ministry of the word. Barnabas was a great godly leader, but a greater than Barnabas is now here. Paul, the 13th apostle, <laughs> born out of due time, but born nevertheless into apostolic ministry in a certain sense. Now, the 12, as we'll see in a moment, are still a separate, distinct, unique group of men. But in a secondary sense of apostleship, Paul and, as a matter of fact, Barnabas too, are commissioned and endorsed and honored by God. Okay, now here we go. When Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. Now they're at the southern tip of what is today Turkey, and a tragic event happens. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He couldn't take it anymore. What was wrong? We're just speculating. We don't know. 
One thing is this. Paul, in a sense, never forgave him for abandoning the ministry. I'm not saying that uh, they weren't ever reconciled, but I mean, for this act, for this choice, John Mark was discredited by Paul. Okay? Why? What did he do wrong? Well, we can speculate that when he saw, you know, they had 110 miles to go across mountainous territory here, robber-infested, dangerous land. I mean, Paul knew something about this area, see, from childhood. Getting up here, and maybe, maybe there was sickness or disease or some other kinds of threats. Whatever it was, friends, in the light of eternity, maybe God will show us someday, John Mark collapsed. And uh, that hurt. That hurt badly. Okay? And went back to his mother in Jerusalem. Oh, John Mark, why are you here? We thought you went off to uh, a mission field with Paul and Barnabas. Well, Mother, I'm just so sorry, but uh, you don't understand what happened, etc. You know what, friends? We have all kinds of Christian workers that have failed in the ministry, apparently. But the good news of John Mark is what? He is later reconciled. He's later accepted by Paul. Peter nourishes him in a sense. I mean, Barnabas nourishes him back into a, a good standing of usefulness for the Lord. Years went by, and he is recovering from that colossal failure. So I say, well, Lord, all of us have failures if we just are honest about it, but God doesn't give up on us that quickly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this story. There's one thing that's so amazing about the book of Acts. God doesn't cover up anything that's evil, sinful, or bads. Okay? Goodbye, John Mark. Goodbye. Okay. But, verse 14, when they departed from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, and after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. He didn't know what he was asking for. You don't say to the Apostle Paul, if you happen to have anything to say, Paul was capable, as we'll see later at Troas, of speaking how long on one occasion? All night long, until people started falling out the windows. <laughs> if you have anything to say, speak. Well, thank you very much. I just happen to have a 10-hour lecture right now. <laughs> May I remind you that what we have in all these verses here is a drastic reduction, summarization of the lengthy speech he gave which has some similarities to what the way Peter preached in Acts 2, condemning the rulers of Israel and yet giving the gospel clearly, similarities to how Stephen preached in Acts 7 with a long introduction from Old Testament history, coming to Jesus at last as the climax, the ultimate fulfiller of everything. <clears throat> oh, how many would be willing to pay, let's see, $100 for a genuine audio CD of Paul's lecture at Antioch of Pisidia. Think of it. What God wants us to know about that sermon is here recorded. Here we go, friends. Are you ready? Verse six, fifteen. Ye men and brethren, the ruler of the synagogue that rulers had said, speak. And Paul stood up, not Barnabas again. Watch it. Paul stands up. 
and beckons with his hand and said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. And then he rehearses Old Testament history, with which I'm sure we're all very familiar. Uh, let me move rapidly down here, friends. As he tells about the call of Abraham, verse 17, and Isaac and Jacob, our fathers, he calls them, okay, and how they were in the exodus uh, from Egypt, verse 18, and the 40 years of wandering, and how they conquered the promised land under God, and then came the period of the judges, and down to Samuel the prophet, verse 20, and all this took about 450 years from the time of Jacob down to the judges, and afterward, now here we're getting down to the issue of who the king of kings is. Watch the build up here. Verse 21, afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul. Now that's his own name, remember, because he was of the tribe of Benjamin, so his parents named him after the first king of Benjamin, of Israel, who was a Benjamite. Okay? And when he had removed him, because of his total failure, you remember, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will, in spite of all his colossal sins, David was God's choice to be the true king of the theocracy of Israel, the ancestor of whom? Of Jesus, through Mary. Okay. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed. God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel as Savior, Jesus. Now here, of course, we know the background of that statement, don't we? From Second Samuel 7, where God says, From your loins, sir, David, I'm going to raise up a son who will never depart from me forever. And uh, Psalm 89 confirms that by an oath, you will be the progenitor of my son. And uh, Psalm 132 confirms that oath of the Davidic covenant, that from David will come God's son is human nature, okay? All these Old Testament passages come to the forefront here, do they not? Now, the one who came to announce the Son's final appearance was the greatest man who had ever lived, John the Baptist. You say the greatest man who ever lived? You know what Jesus said of him? No man ever born of woman is greater than John. Now, that includes... Uh, David himself, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of Daniel. No man ever born of woman is greater than John. He was a burning and a shining light. Friends, he was an absolutely spectacular, faithful, God-honoring witness to the Lord Jesus. And concerning Jesus, he said what? Look at this. Verse 25. He said, I'm not he... I'm not Messiah, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. He is infinitely superior to me. Infinitely superior. And, of course, his own disciples, then he turned over to Jesus. He said, I'm not the, I'm not the bride, but you will be, and I'm not connected with the bridegroom like you are, like you're going to be, he said to his disciples. As a matter of fact, here's how great John really was. He said, he must increase, but what? I must decrease. I'm fading out. Now, that was hard. That was hard for John. 
because he was the embodiment, the incarnation, as it were, of Isaiah 40. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He came to announce the kingdom. He preached with power, repent for the kingdom of heavens at hand. And he's the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, that he is the messenger who's going to prepare the way for the, for the Savior. Yes, but he never lived to see the kingdom. He never lived to see the Savior being inaugurated in his kingdom. And in a weak moment, he sent his two disciples to Jesus and said to him, I'm sure with tears, as he's in a dungeon now, ready to be beheaded, said, Are you he that's to come, sir? Or should we look for another? And Jesus very tenderly responded, Look at all these people that are being healed. Everything's fine, John. The kingdom's under control, thank you. And now here's this one. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. See you later, John. Au revoir. Goodbye. From Antioch to Antioch. We'll get back on that journey and finish this message next week here on Encounter God's Truth. You can also review a commentary on Acts written by Dr. Whitcomb and Pastor George Zeller of Middletown Bible Church. It's found in the free resources we present at whitcombministries.org. We're in Volume 5 of Acts, Witness of the Early Church, and you can hear the messages from all these volumes at sermonaudio.com slash whitcomb. Then look for new updates from our ministry at facebook.com slash whitcombministries. I'm Wayne Shepherd. So grateful for each listener and for each station that brings you these broadcasts. Be sure to thank them as well for their faithfulness in bringing you this program, Encounter God's Truth.